6, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Well, if you look around here on a Sunday morning, you will discover that we enjoy both diversity and freedom in our worship. Uh, you will definitely not see the seraphim flying around with six wings. That you will not see. But you might see uh, people with their hands raised or not. Uh, there's freedom for both. Uh, sometimes there we stand. Sometimes we sit. There's freedom to do either one. Sometimes we bow in quiet reverent, silent prayer, while at other times we lift our voices and cry out to God with a loud voice. And in our prayer time today, a little bit later, many people will be praying out loud at the same time, interceding on our behalf, and that will be something new for us again. Worship generates many different responses. You know that from your experience at church so far. Worship generates many different responses. One day there was an elderly woman standing in the worship service and she had her hands raised like this in worship. She was quietly praising God and praying in the service and there was a little three-year-old that was standing in front, of, in front of her on the pew in front of her and he turned around and saw her hands up like this so he turned around and gave her a high five. <laughs> worship generates many different responses, right? Seemed legit, you know, celebrating God, celebrating with a high five. Worship generates many different responses. I have a book in my library from which I gleaned this description of worship. Worship is an active response to God whereby we declare His worth. Worship is not passive but is participatory. Worship is not simply a mood, it's a response Worship is not just a feeling, it's a declaration. I believe that in, when we worship together as, as God's people, we're making a declaration to the seen and the unseen worlds that God is worthy of our worship. It's a declaration. The English word worship simply means to attribute worth to someone or something. And so when we worship, as men and women who believe in the triune God of the Bible, we are actually ascribing to the Lord the glory do His name. 
We're giving Him glory. We're ascribing to Him worth as we worship Him. Ascribing to God His supreme worth, that's what's missing in many churches today. Ascribing to God the glory due His name. We have, we've made worship to be more about us and less about Him. We've made worship to be about us and not about Jesus. We often focus on the preacher's worth or the teacher's worth or, or the building's worth or the music's worth. Or, and there's nothing wrong with that. All of those things are important, but too often we stop short and we fail to allow these elements to usher us into the presence of our God. And our tendency is, is to look at them, to look at those things instead of looking at Him in worship. In Isaiah's day, the divided nations of Israel and Judah had, for all intents and purposes, turned their backs on God. Powered by military might and financial security, the Jewish people felt that they no longer needed God. Happens to us sometimes when things are going right. Who needs Him? The Jewish people felt they no longer needed God. Presumption had replaced gratitude, and pride had usurped reverence. And so it's against this dark spiritual backdrop that Isaiah appears on the scene, and God uses him to refocus or restore genuine worship to Israel. First of all, in his worship experience, Isaiah saw the Lord. This comes right out of Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. So the Jewish people had lost sight of God. It was significant, therefore, that Isaiah's worship experience began with a spectacular and stunning vision of God Himself, high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, surrounded by angels. What a vision that was. His presence was so holy that even the seraphim covered their faces. And that's always, a, that's always a, uh, an indication of humility. And even to this day, when Jewish men go to the synagogue and they begin their prayers, they, they begin by covering their faces like this. It's a sign of humility. It's an act of humility before such an awesome and great God. And so the seraphim covered their faces, indicating humility. These six-winged angelic beings called seraphim were glorious beings, angelic beings, and they, but they were also very fervent and they were very passionate in their, in their worship of God. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the worship service literally rocked the foundations of the temple. Now we have a saying, oh man, that service rocked. Well, this one literally did. The foundations of the temple shook and the place was filled with smoke. But why? Because God was in the house. Worship must begin with our eyes fixed on the holy, holy, holy God of heaven. That's where it begins. That's where it starts. So when we come to church for worship, we should be looking for God, not just our friends. We should anticipate meeting with Jesus and not just the people in our small group. 
Our souls should be open to drink in the grace of God. Our hearts should be longing to be in the presence of God. Our minds should be receptive to the glory of God. And our church should be focused on the gospel of God. And then, perhaps, maybe, we will see the Lord too. We will see Him high and lifted up. And the train of His robe will fill whatever space we're meeting in. And the presence of Jesus will fill the house and we will all be changed. Wouldn't that be something? But that's what happens. That's what happens when gospel-centered worship prevails. In his worship experience described in Isaiah 6, the prophet not only saw the Lord, but he was touched by the Lord. He was also touched by the Lord. Verse 5, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The brilliant light of God's countenance revealed the darkness and desperation of Isaiah's condition. Woe is me, he cried out. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people that have the same problem. In other words, I'm a sinner living among sinners. And that's, a, that's the way it is for you and me. We're a bunch of sinners living with a bunch of sinners. And how else could you respond when you're confronted face to face with God's holiness like Isaiah was? I mean, Isaiah caught a glimpse of the holiness of God and he was undone. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. All of a sudden he realizes in the presence of a holy God his own wretched human condition. God reveals himself in his holiness and his purity and by contrast, the human condition is less than wretched. It's totally off the rails. And Isaiah sees that very clearly and so do we, right? when we come face to face with God, when we get in the groove of worship and God begins to reveal Himself and His holiness and His power and His strength and His majesty and His might and His dominion, we go, oh my goodness, I fall so short of the mark that God has set for us. We realize in that moment how woefully sinful and separated we are from God. However, and here's where the good news comes in, the Lord did not abandon Isaiah in his sinfulness. He did not turn his back on Isaiah, but rather he cleansed him in a unique way. Let's have a look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. <laughs> so God touched Isaiah with the cleansing fire of forgiveness. Your guilt is taken away, Isaiah. Your sin atoned for. And just as Isaiah, or just as God forgave Isaiah, he also makes provision for our forgiveness also. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. And not only that, but the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to, to what? To forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says, 1 John 1, 9. The Bible also says in Colossians 2, that you, we, who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And the Bible says in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, which is described as the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible says in Ephesians 1.7, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Isn't that good news? That's good news. So even though we might catch a glimpse of the holiness and purity of God in worship, and in that same moment realize that we fall so short and that we are woefully sinful human beings, God provides for us in the blood of Jesus Christ forgiveness and grace and peace and reconciliation. God sent the seraphim to cleanse Isaiah's lips but he sent his own son, Jesus, to cleanse our hearts. Have you been to Jesus for cleansing lately? Have you found yourself lying prostrate before the Lord, confessing your sins to God on your knees in repentance to receive his gracious forgiveness? It's part of worship. Isaiah saw the Lord. He was touched by the Lord. And then in verse 8, he heard from the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You know, sometimes people wonder why they can't hear the voice of God. You know, it's been so long since I heard God speak to me in my, in my devotions, my quiet time. It's been so long since I heard the voice of the Lord in, in a worship service at church. I've tried different churches. I've gone from, from this church to that church. I can't hear the voice of God. Did it ever occur to you that sin might be standing in the way? that there might be unconfessed sin between you and God, and that, that creates a barrier, that creates a, a blockade between you and God. You, you see, as soon as Isaiah confessed the wretchedness of his own life and his own state before the Lord, his human, humanity before the Lord, he was touched by the forgiveness of God, he was cleansed uh, by the fire of God, and then all of a sudden he hears the voice of the Lord again. He hears the voice of God speak to him. I heard the voice of the Lord saying... Whom shall I send? And that's often what happens in worship. We come face to face with God. We realize our desperate need of Him. We drop to our knees and confess our sin and get cleansed and forgiven. And then God speaks. God declares. God reveals Himself. And, and, and then finally, after all of this, Isaiah responded to the Lord. Because because when God speaks to us, when God declares Himself, when He reveals something to us, He, he often is, is, is expecting some kind of response for, from us, a response of obedience that may be a, a response to, to His call, His invitation, a step of obedience, a, a, a movement of sacrifice in the symphony of praise. It calls for a response of some kind. And Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. Send me, Lord. Here I am. As if God couldn't see him. Woohoo! Here I am, Lord. Send me. Send me. He's eager and he's excited again. He's animated and he's motivated again. 
Why? Because he's seen the Lord. He's seen the Lord. He's been touched by the fires of forgiveness. His life and his calling have been affirmed by God. God speaks to him again, and he responds to the voice of the Lord and says, Here I am. Send me. Would you guys be quiet out there? We're trying to worship God in here. Couple more weeks, couple more weeks. <laughs> but clearly, there's no substitute for worship, is there? We were made to worship. I mean, we sing that song. Do we really believe it? We were made to worship God. And if people don't worship God, they end up worshiping something else. Just go to a game in Ann Arbor and you'll see what I mean. Just go to the Joe and watch a game. You'll see what I mean. People are made to worship. And if they don't find their worship in the God of heaven and earth, they will, they will express it in some other way. We're made to worship. Clearly, there's no substitute for worship. Worship is a time to open up, not cover up. Worship is a time for confession, not excuses. Around Thanksgiving, a few years ago, radio commentator Paul Harvey shared this true story about a woman and her frozen Thanksgiving turkey. I know that I've shared this story at least once before. It might be familiar to you. But the Butterball Turkey Company had set up a, a hotline, a telephone hotline, to help people with their holiday turkey recipes. How to prepare a, one of these great big turkeys in the oven. So one woman called to inquire about, about her turkey that had been in the bottom of her freezer for 23 years. Seriously, 23 years. And, and so the butterball rep told her the turkey would, would probably be okay to eat if it had been completely frozen for the entire time. But went on to say that even if the turkey was okay to eat, it probably wouldn't have any flavor left in it. And she said, you know, that's what I thought. I'll just give it to the church. Old couches, printers that don't work anymore, 23-year-old turkeys. Why not? Folks, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ deserves our very best in worship. He deserves the first hour of the day. He deserves the first dollar of my pay. He deserves first place in everything, and that includes worship. Are you with me? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we began this service this morning just feeling so thankful for your word and for worship. My heart beat faster this morning as I looked at all the young men and women who led us in worship. Father, we're, we're incredibly grateful for the young adults that you have blessed us with. So grateful that they could lead us in songs of worship and praise this morning. And we'll do so yet throughout this service as we celebrate communion together and pray together. 
And Lord, as we meditate and pray our way through Isaiah 6, we're, we're deeply grateful that you chose to reveal yourself to us with, with words that we can understand and trust. We understand the whole concept of worship so much better this morning because of Isaiah 6 and, and because of the symphony of grace that's been played out in the pages of Holy Scripture. And even if we can't relate personally to the six-winged heavenly beings called seraphim who worshipped our Father in heaven, we certainly can relate to this man named Isaiah and his feelings of unworthiness and uncleanness before such a great and awesome God. And today, Lord, today in particular, we're thankful to know that we can worship you as the God of hope. In a world of predictable unpredictabilities, unsettling circumstances, and broken people, it's a source of immeasurable joy and, and a source of peace for us to know that you love us and that you're in control of all things. It's a source of incredible hope to know that we can fall down before you and, and worship just the way we are. And thank you that you intend for us to abound in hope, not just to have enough hope to get by on, but to really abound in hope. We don't have to be afraid or dismayed by anything or anyone, for your righteous right hand has a firm hold on us. Your, your grip is the grip of grace. You're fully with us and fully for us. We know this to be true because of your gift in Jesus, and we thank you. Father, you loved us so much that you gave us your one and only Son so that instead of perishing, we would have eternal life. Father, thank you that the gospel is true and that you really do love us this much. Kind of mind-blowing, mind-boggling. Because you have already given us so much grace in Jesus, we just, we just choose to obey you and set our hope fully on the grace yet to be given, the even greater grace we receive when Jesus comes again. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for being so very generous, so hope-igniting, so peace-fueling. You are our God. And even as we give our, our offering to you this morning, or should I say your tithes and our offerings. As we give, let it be an act of worship and thanksgiving. Not 23 years old, but fresh and real and relevant today. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen.